If you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. We will begin reading verse 33. Hear now the word of the Lord. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what an incredible truth that we have before us this morning. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Father, I pray that as we think now on what that means for us, as we think about the extent of our freedom in Christ, Lord, that you would come, that you would be working through your word, that you would speak to your people through the power of your word, that you'd be conforming our hearts to the image of Christ. And Father, that your word would go forth even to those who don't know you, that you would open their eyes to see the freedom that can be had in Christ, and you'd give them the grace to run to him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. I hope you are encouraged by everything we have already seen and heard this morning. You should be. In a, in a world that seems like it's nothing but bad news, we get to come in here and see that the good news is still advancing. And the kingdom is growing, and the power of the gospel is still at work. God is continuing to call his people out of darkness and into light. Well, in light of all of that, in light of these, these baptism and new members and even our partaking in the Lord's Supper at the end of service, I thought it providential that we are on these beautiful words from our Lord Jesus Christ uh, with regards to his work in the heart of the sinner. And so I thought it would be prudent that we just slow down and take a look at this passage in and of itself and see all that is meant by these words. The truth is that the testimonies that we heard this morning are a reminder to us all that man's greatest problem is not what we're being told by modern society. The world wants us to think that our greatest problem is something out there that our, our greatest problem is the, the political divide, or at least the people on the other side of the political aisle, or perhaps it's, it's the political it's system itself, or perhaps it's, it's the economy, or the racial divide, or education, or the media, or mental health, or the health system, or Hollywood, or, or guns, or the oppression of the majority, or the elites of society, and on and on it goes. If we could just fix those things, then surely everything would be okay. Right? Wrong. Our greatest problem is none of those things, and none of those things can fix our greatest problem. The reality is, as Christ makes clear in this passage, and as the Bible demonstrates from Genesis to Revelation, our greatest problem is sin. The world has a sin problem. And the world has a sin problem because we all have a sin problem. 
every single person born of Adam is born with a sin problem. The problem is not somewhere out there in the world. The problem is in here. It's, it's us. It's the heart of man. And while political reform is a good thing, to be sure, no amount of political reform can change the heart or bring freedom from this kind of slavery. But praise be to God, this is why Christ came, to save sinners, to set the captives free, as we heard earlier from Isaiah chapter 61. This is why God sent him. And if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. This morning we've heard from nine people for whom the Son has set free, who are free indeed. We as a church are a gathering of people whom the Son has set free. And I want us to spend our time thinking through what that means, what this freedom truly is. So as we look at this passage, we're simply going to look at man's greatest problem, his slavery to sin, and the only solution to that problem, which is the freedom given to us by Christ our Lord. And in that, I want us to understand the extent of our freedom. It is is far beyond what we often even think, and it's far more glorious than what we often think. It has ramifications in our lives now and in the age to come. The truth is we have much to rejoice about, as we will see in this text today. But to get there, we need to understand what we are freed from. We need to start with man's greatest problem. So look with me again at verse 33. It says, They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, in order to understand why, why this is being said, we need to quickly refresh ourselves of the context leading up to this point. We are still very much in the events surrounding the Feast of Tabernacles that began back in chapter 7. Through, through this time, Jesus has made some incredible statements about who He is and about the salvation that He is offering. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. And just prior to this, Back up in verse 24, Jesus had warned the Jews that unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then he went on to speak of his coming passion, his his being lifted up as the Son of Man, and his unity with the Father. And in response to this, John noted in verse 30 that many of the Jews who were present believed in him. But as we talked about last week, this belief falls in line with the pattern that we see in this gospel, the pattern of superficial belief that John repeatedly brings out, just like in chapter 2 and in chapter 6. They had a form of belief, but it was not saving belief. They were not believing in the fullness of who Christ is. And the evidence of that is right here in this verse. When it says, they answered him, we need to ask the question, They who? Who is the they to which John is referring? And that goes back to verse 31. Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So two things to take note of 
there. Jesus is directly addressing the Jews who supposedly believe in him. And just as we talk about, talked about last week, his language indicates that they weren't truly his disciples. If you abide, you are truly, meaning really, or actually my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Meaning they're, they're not already there. And he knew it. This is the same thing as we saw in chapter 2 when John said, Many believed in Jesus, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knows all man and he knows what is in man. Same thing is going on here. And what Jesus knew about their hearts comes out now in their words. We are offspring of Abraham, never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say that we would be free? The Jews were offended at the very notion that they could be or needed to be set free. Now, many have debated the question, what did they mean by we have never been enslaved to anyone? Were they speaking in physical terms, or did they mean this spiritually? And I think they understood Christ to be speaking on a spiritual level, and I think they mean this on a spiritual level for a couple of reasons. One is because they're speaking of their identity as the children of Abraham, as Israelites, as Jews. And for them to say that the children of Israel have never been enslaved to anyone or to any nation would be a flat-out absurdity. As everyone knows, they had been under the control of Egypt. They had been under the control of Babylon. They had been under the control of Persia. They had been under the control of Greece. And they had been under the control of Rome. They've experienced slavery all of those nations had held the Jewish people under their control at some point. And these Jews were not ignorant of their history. I mean, even, even in this very moment, they're at the Feast of Tabernacles, which they were celebrating the time in which God liberated them from slavery to Egypt. They knew that. But the other big indicator here that they understood Jesus to be speaking on spiritual terms here, spiritual freedom is the fact that they assumed that their lineage, their status as Abraham's descendants, was an argument against what Christ is offering them. The Jews boasted in their lineage, and they assumed that their rightness with God was rooted in their Jewish identity. Their having descended from Abraham with whom God had made his covenant. They, they assumed their physical lineage made them right with God. In their view, to be a child of Abraham was ultimate privilege and ultimate freedom. In fact, the, the Jewish Mishnah says, even the poorest in Israel are looked upon as freemen who have lost their possessions. For them to be spiritually free to be spiritually liberated was to be a child of Abraham, no matter the conditions of life. So when Jesus told them that the truth of who he is, abiding in his word, is what would set them free, for them he had just crossed a line. We are Abraham's seed, his offspring. We are free. This goes to show that they were absolutely only believing in him as a political messiah, not as a savior of souls. They were willing to believe in him so long as he fit their mold, their expectations, their conceptions of how things were. But he didn't. 
And Jesus goes right after that. Look at how he responds to them in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Notice he once again uses the authoritative formula here of amen, amen, meaning truly, truly. We haven't seen him use this in a while. In fact, the last time was back in chapter 6 when he declared that you must eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to inherit eternal life. When Jesus uses this formula, he does so to bring sobriety and and weight to what he is about to say. And for the, for the Jews, that is, d- despite what they may think, despite their lineage, they are, in fact, slaves. And not just them, but everyone, as Jesus says here. They are in the same boat of every single person in the world. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And that is a universal truth for all mankind, whether, whether Jew or Gentile, man or woman, all are slaves to sin. No matter how one may feel about their relative goodness in this world, apart from Christ, we are all slaves to sin. And Jesus uses the language of of slavery on purpose. By it, he means every implication that comes with it. A slave is one who is owned by another. He is one who lives in bondage rather than freedom. He is one whose will is completely subject to his master, and he is bound to carry out the will of his master, whether he desires to or not. He is never free from his master, and his subjection to his master is his identity in this world. He never rises above that, and he never goes beyond that. He is a slave. That's what it means to be a slave. And that is the relationship of every single person to sin. Sin is the slave master of fallen humanity. And outside of Christ, we all do our master's bidding all the time. And the reason that is true is because it has taken hold of our very natures. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are born sinners, born from corruption and into corruption. The very core of our beings are corrupt. As David said in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That is is the state of the unregenerate human heart. And that means that the unredeemed human heart does nothing except sin. It is only capable of sin. Every action the unbeliever performs, no matter what it is, is sin. A transgression against God. Now that is not to say that unbelievers do not treat each other with kindness and benevolence, that they do not love their families or contribute to society. Most of them certainly do. And that is by God's common grace upon them. But even that, for them, is sinful. 
Because all of it is done in total disregard for the God who made them, in disregard for the source of their life, in the source of any goodness that is within them. We are commanded to do all things under the glory of God, and the unbeliever does nothing unto the glory of God. So even their good deeds are a stench to God as He regards them. As Isaiah says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. The truth is, when when Christ says that the unbeliever is a slave to sin, he is not speaking in exaggerated terms at all. They can only ever sin. And the most deceiving part about it is that without Christ... We don't even see our own captivity. We do not think that we are slaves to sin. We we might be happy to admit that we are in fact sinners, that we sin like everyone else. We might have a vice or two that we struggle with, but still most people maintain that they believe themselves to be good, to be a good person. They do not understand the evil nature of sin and that their will is bound to it because they themselves are evil. Universally, all of us outside of Christ comfort ourselves through comparison. Well, I, I, I'm at least better than them. I'm not like that, that guy. It's one of the reasons people actually like to watch the news so much. There's a f- feeling of superiority as we, as we shake our heads at the ills of society. We all think we are good, or at least better than someone else. There's a brother whose, whose work really sheds light on this. I'm sure many of you have heard of him. His name is Ray Comfort. He's a street evangelist of short, sorts, and he often goes around to people on the streets with video camera and just interviews them in order to get to the gospel and to point them to their need of Christ. I've watched many of his encounters online, and it's fascinating to note he begins almost every single time the exact same way with the question of, are you a good person? Do you believe yourself to be a good person? And almost always, without exception, the answer is yes. Yes, I'm a good person. Of course, then he runs them through the Ten Commandments, holding the law up to them as a mirror to reveal the truth that they, they have not kept God's commands. They have blasphemed his name. They have lied more times than they can even remember. They have stolen in their life, and they are indeed adulterers at heart. But even then, more often than not, the person just laughs all that off and will adamantly maintain that they still believe themselves to be a good person. Deceived. And the Jews were no different. Especially the Pharisees among them. They were outward keepers of the law with dead hearts. They prayed out in public, in open, to receive praise. They made announcements when they gave so that others could see. They desired the praise of man rather than the approval of God. And they comforted themselves in their prayers by saying, Thank God I am not like other men. As God said, they honored him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Their righteousness was a stench. The sinfulness of the human heart cannot be overcome even by obedience to the law of God. It will only use it to its own ends and not for his glory. By works of the law, no man will be justified. But here, 
Christ continues to point even them to the only hope and the only solution for the dead, enslaved, sinful heart. Look at verse 35. He says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. He starts here with a simple analogy playing off the very familiar system of slavery that was everywhere in the first century. The word there that is translated house can also speak of the household, those who, who belong to the house. And in the first century, one's household not only include members of the family, but it also include one's slaves, the slaves of the house. And the slaves had no permanent residence, and everyone understood that. They had no authority, and they had no inheritance. They were mere property that could be discarded or sold out of the house at any time. They were not permanent members of the house, like a son would be. A son will never be removed. A son belongs to the house, operates with the authority of the house, and he has all the inheritance rights of the house. You see, the Jews think themselves to be part of the family as being Abraham's descendants, but they were not. They were slaves to sin and in need of the true son as much as anyone else because it is only he who can grant true freedom and true eternal membership to the family of God, which is why he says, so if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus' language here is obviously meant to emphasize the absolute and total nature of the freedom that is found in Him. This is, this is ultimate freedom. Freedom that goes beyond any kind of worldly freedom that we could ever even think of or imagine. This is not partial freedom. This is not contingent freedom. This is not conditional freedom. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Truly free. And when it comes to our freedom from slavery to sin, there's actually a threefold nature to the fullness of this freedom that Christ gives. The Bible speaks of this in different ways. The Bible speaks of our freedom from sin, our salvation, in three different ways, all contributing to the totality of this freedom. And that is freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the power of sin, and freedom from the presence of sin. Anything less than that would not be ultimate freedom. But Christ saves to the uttermost. And I just want us to quickly think through all three of these elements here, starting with freedom from the penalty of sin. And this is the, this is the foundation of them all. This is the one we most often think of when we think about our salvation. But very often the gravity of it is missed. Often it's not understood that being saved from the penalty of sin, we are actually being saved from God. We are being saved from God Himself. We're not being saved for some principle in the universe that is functioning like karma or something. You do bad things, you get bad results. No, sin is punished because God is holy. God is the one who punishes sin. Not Satan or anything else like that. It is God. And because God is good, 
Because God is righteous, because God is just, because God is holy, He hates sin. And in His justice, He will punish all sin. His his wrath towards sin is rooted in His love for righteousness. Now, many try to deny this aspect of, of God's character. People don't like the idea of a wrathful God. Some will even say, well, he, he is a God of love, not a God of anger. But they say that without scriptural warrant. Psalm seven eleven says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons, and he makes his arrows fiery shafts. Or Isaiah chapter 30, verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick rising smoke his lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. Oh, well, that's just the Old Testament. Trying to create a false dichotomy between the Old and the New Testaments will not save you from this. And speaking of Jesus' return in Revelation 19, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. God is not some humanitarian Santa Claus in the sky. He is a righteous judge who will punish the wicked. Because God is a God of love, He must be angry. He is angry with the wicked every day. And as Ezekiel 18 says, the soul who sins shall die. The problem for us is that's everybody. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us actually have so much guilt that it mounts up to the heavens. Ezra chapter 9. Each one of us has a record of death that stands against us before a holy God. And we cannot save ourselves. We cannot free ourselves from that record of debt. But this is why Christ came. This is why God sent His Son Thankfully, God is not just a God of wrath, but He is a God of mercy. And He is a God of love. And He sent His Son that in Him we may find forgiveness. As John the Apostle explains, 1 John 4, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is a technical term. It's a technical term for a sacrifice that satisfies divine wrath. God gave His own Son as a sacrifice to satisfy His own wrath against our sin. And in so doing, it legitimately allows God to forgive our sin. It enables God to be both just, to uphold His justice, and to be the justifier of those who believe. The justifier of guilty sinners. 
When Christ went to the cross, our record of debt went with Him. As Paul says in Colossians 2, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. How? Having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How? This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Praise God. You bear no more guilt because of what Christ has done. There is no penalty. There is no punishment. There is no wrath. There is no condemnation in your future if you are in Christ. Christ took it all. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now when God looks at you, you who are in Christ, whether on your best day or your worst day, it matters not. What He sees is the righteousness of His Son. Because you have been clothed in His righteousness rather than your sin. Christ has set you free from the penalty of sin by taking it for you. This is why we have no fear in death. When we die, we can enter into judgment with confidence, without fear, because there's no wrath for us. It's ultimate freedom in Christ. But that's just one element. He doesn't stop there. He's also freed you from the power of sin. Now, of the three, this is the element that most gets overlooked and underemphasized. Not by Scripture. Scripture makes it clear. The fact is, Scripture makes clear that those who have been redeemed in Christ are no longer slaves to sin now, in this life. Because the power of sin has been broken by Christ. Sin no longer holds our hearts in its grip. In fact, rather than being slaves of sin, we are now slaves of righteousness. It's exactly what Paul says in Romans 6, 17. He says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That means two significant things for us. That, that means we're able to do two things now that we could not do before. One is we're able to please God. We're able to actually walk in obedience before Him. Couldn't do that before. And second, we are able not to sin. That, that does not mean we will live a life without sin. We won't. But we are able, in any given situation, not to sin. Prior to Christ, both of those were an absolute impossibility. As the Scripture says in Hebrews 11, without, without faith it is impossible to please God. The natural man cannot please God as they are slaves to sin. They cannot avoid sin. They only sin. But those who have been redeemed can do both. And that is possible because of the nature of the new covenant. There's several things that has been given to us in Christ that enables us to live life in obedience. First, Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf. 
So we are no longer under the law that we could not keep as a ministry of death. But two, rather we have now been given new hearts that have the law of God written upon them. In other words, we are hardwired to obey through regeneration, through the new birth. And not to just external conformity, but from the inside, from actual inward righteousness, inward obedience from the heart. And three, we have been given the Spirit of God, of whom we have the power, by whom we have the power to obey. It is Him, the Spirit inside us, who provides that power. This is why the Scriptures repeatedly exhort us to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Because the reality is believers now exist in a constant state of conflict. Our inward nature that has been changed, that has been set free from sin, is in a constant state of war with our sinful flesh. As long as we are in these bodies of death, we will still sin. As John says in 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We will sin. However, that is not a license to sin. It is just an acknowledgement that we will sin. But the true Christian does not continue in a life of sin because they have been set free from sin. They actually can't continue in a life of sin. As John goes on to say in 1 John 3, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in Him, and He cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. Now, John's not contradicting himself here. While acknowledging that we will sin as we continue in these bodies of death, the true Christian does not continue in a lifestyle of sin, in a pursuit of sin. Indeed, he cannot because he's been born of God, because he is a slave of righteousness, because he has a new heart and a new spirit within him. And this is why we must use our freedom not to pursue sin, but to pursue obedience. We have been set free in order to obey God. In our freedom, we have the ability to live out the commands of Scripture. Now, not perfectly, to be sure, but the Christian life is not a passive sitting back and waiting for glory. It is is active. It is a pursuing of holiness. It is a pursuing of conformity to Christ. This is what progressive sanctification is all about. As we continue in the faith and walk by the Spirit, we begin to look more and more and more like Him. When the new believer starts out, his flesh has been exercised more than his inward man. And so he stumbles into sin much more frequently than the seasoned saint. But as he, by the Spirit, puts to death the deeds of the bodies, Romans 8, and as he grows in conformity to Christ, he sees more and more of his freedom from sin manifest in his life. Now, it's true that we we will never reach perfection this side of glory. 
Don't buy into sinless perfectionism. That's not what the scripture teaches. We cannot be perfect as long as we have this sinful flesh. But that should not stop us from pressing on in obedience. Even the Apostle Paul acknowledges in Philippians 3. He said, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me His own. Brothers and sisters, Christ has has made you His own. He has freed you from the power of sin so that you can be like Him, so that you can live out actual righteousness in this life. And one day, that pursuit will give way to the ultimate and final freedom, the third freedom that Christ has given us, which is freedom from the presence of sin. That's where it's all heading. That's where this is going. As the saying goes, God saves the best wine for last. And this is it. The freedom from the penalty of sin, the freedom from the power of sin, will one day give way to the freedom from the presence of sin. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but without question, this is one of the most significant aspects of future glory. A world without sin. A state mankind has never known since the fall. And contrary to what some believe, our future glorification is actually not a return to pre-fall status, and specifically as it pertains to sin. Because while, yes, Adam and Eve existed prior to the fall in a sinless state, it is not the same state that we will exist in in glory. It's different. Augustine is actually really helpful here. He laid out what is called a fourfold state of man that is found in the Scriptures. When it's all said and done, when God's plan of redemption reaches its consummation, mankind will have existed in four different states. And all of these are absolutely clear in Scripture. First is is the state of innocence. This is the pre-fall state that Adam and Eve lived in before the fall. Second is the state of sin. That is our our fallen state, apart from Christ. Third is the state of grace. That is what those who have been born again now enjoy. And finally is the state of glory. That is the glory that is to come for the redeemed. So innocence, sin, grace, glory. Those are the four states. Now, Augustine rightly noted that in each one of these states, man's relationship to sin is different. In the pre-fall state, in the state of innocence, listen to this carefully, man is able not to sin and is able to sin. That was Adam's state before he fell. He was able not to sin and he was able to sin. In the fallen state, the state of sin Man is not able not to sin. I know that's a double negative. It's the way Augustine worded it, so blame him. But it's exactly right. It is what the Bible teaches. Man can only sin. He is not able not to sin. In the redeemed state, in the state of grace, for those of us who have been born again, man is now able not to sin. As we discussed, he will still sin, but he's able not to. But in the final state, in the state of glory, 
Man is not able to sin. Man is unable to sin. Meaning, in glory, different than it was in the garden, man will live in a state where sin is not even possible. We are unable to sin. Well, why? How, how do we know that? Because we have been made, we will have been made like him in perfect conformity. As John says in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Where Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. Church, those of us who have been set free by the Son are destined to be made perfect in His likeness forever, for eternity. And in that eternity, sin is, is not only not present, it's not possible. Like Christ in glory, we will be incapable of sin. If you're ever worried that you might get to heaven and mess things up, you don't have to worry. You won't. And nobody else will either. Now I hope you see and understand why Christ says this the way he says it. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. If you've not experienced that freedom, you never will on your own. You can't on your own. You are incapable You must see your need of the Son. You need a Savior, and Christ is the only one. Run to the Son. Believe upon the Son. Trust in the Son. For if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what manner of freedom is this? We are free indeed. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you did not leave us as slaves to sin, but you came to free your enemies and to make us like him. God, we are thankful. Lord, we pray that in this life that we would use our freedom to glorify your name, to pursue holiness, and good works to love one another and not for the deeds of the flesh. Lord, help us to be like him now. Help us to anticipate his return and thus purify ourselves in that anticipation. We thank you for what Christ has done. We pray this in his name. Amen.